Thank you, Jim. Um, I'm one of the ones who got sick. So if the sermon is a little short and maybe disjointed a little bit, um, I'm going to claim it's because I'm sick. That's what I'm going with. We want to invite our children to Children's Church. And uh, while they're going, uh, this past week, I was in Illinois for the Evangelical Free Church of America Theology Conference. And um, I, this one just I thought was really great because every couple of years, the Free Church does a, a, a survey of the churches. Uh, I think it's like every two years they ask, you know, how many people have been baptized, what's your normal attendance, that kind of stuff. And then for anybody who's ordained or licensed, um, they send out a theological survey. And I thought that was very smart. I thought that was a great idea. And uh, this time when they sent out the theological survey, um, there were some questions about some of the responses. Um, for example, uh, a non-zero amount of people agreed that Jesus was the first created being. And that's really not Christian. <laughs> There has never been a time when the sun wasn't. So what uh, Greg Strand, he's the director of theology for the Free Church, what he did this time was he picked about five or six different doctrines, and he invited people to come and speak on them. And the, the idea, the reason, there's a reason I'm going on about this. The idea is, um, in other denominations, the statement of faith might be a confession or something like that, and it really nails down all the doctrines. The way the Free Church does it is we set try to set boundaries for the, the, the ends of um, evangelical orthodoxy. So we don't get really nailed down on a lot of them. So since we set the edges like that with our statement of faith, there can be no drift because we're already you know, trying to be as generous as possible. So that was what this was about, was we had some people talk about various doctrines and, um, and if anybody ever tells you evangelicals are light on theology, I want you to know that Fred Sanders, he, is, uh, he teaches at Biola. He is uh, um, an elder in a free church down below. He came, he's written, I don't know, three or four books on the doctrine of the Trinity, and they're really good. <laughs> and Fred came, and he taught us on the doctrine of God. And the next morning, when I was at a TIU alumni breakfast, we, there were probably, it was about five or six pastors sitting at that breakfast table talking about the aseity of God and the problems with the eternal functional subordination of the sun. So we're not talking about lightweight doctrines here. These are very important things. And so I was just really grateful that we did that. The, the, um, the session ended with Dr. D.A. Carson. Um, he teaches, or used to teach at, at uh, Trinity, um, not this church, but the seminary. And uh, he's recently retired, so he's, he's a professor emeritus. Um, but he was introduced as being the most capable person to speak on the doctrine of hell. And he came up and he stood for a si second silent and he said, I'm not sure how I feel about being imminently qualified to speak <laughs> on the doctrine of hell. <laughs> so um, it was just, it was a great conference. And, and um, I think that's where I got my cold was coming back, you know, this big metal tube flying through the air where they recirculate the air and put you next to people you don't know. I think that's where I got the cold. So. Um, I didn't think it'd be fair to Dan to drop on him at about 4.35 o'clock on a Saturday night. Hey, dude, I'm not going to preach. You got it. Bye. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is I'm going to preach, and then I'm going to run out the door so I don't get anybody else sick. So that's, what, that's the plan for this morning. Um, before we begin, let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, um, we have already asked you that you would give us um, health, that you would restore everybody who's sick, that you would um, bind us up and, and strengthen us. And Lord, we come to you again, and would you please do that for us? And uh, Lord, your word says that 
your strength is perfected in our weakness. And so, Lord, this morning as we're gathered to worship and part of our worship team is missing and, and I'm not feeling the best and all of that, we've got plenty of weakness. And so, Lord, we invite you, please come and fill up our weakness with your majesty, with your glory, with your strength. And, and would you be perfected, filled up, complete, whole in our eyes as we do that. Be with us now as we look at this um, last part of chapter 19 of Exodus. And show yourself to be glorious, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So, um, last week, what they did, the people were told, consecrate yourself because God's going to meet you in three days. And so, they did that. They washed their clothes. Um, they um, didn't go near women. And um, I said that was probably a cleanliness issue. Uh, another commentary I saw said that was maybe a form of fasting. So, I thought maybe that was, that was kind of an interesting approach to it, is it's a form of fasting. But whatever they did, they, they consecrated themselves, they set themselves apart, and they were ready for when their Lord came. And that's what happens this morning. So it, on, the, on the morning of the third day, so it's not like they were wandering around in the camp looking up at the mountain going, when's he going to get here? It was they stepped out of their tent and boom, there's the mountain on fire. There's this big, huge epiphany. Um, that's what we're going to talk about a lot in this uh, at, at the beginning is epiphany. And when I say epiphany, I mean an appearance of God where God shows up. So in this one, it's pretty startling, isn't it? The, um, the mountain is covered in flame and, and smoke. And the top of the mountain, it looks like a kiln with the, the air going up in a kiln. In those days, you'd build a fire and it had kind of a chimney effect. And, and as the heat rose, it would draw more air in and heat up the coals even hotter. And so that was how it would get really hot. So it would, when it was at its most, uh, at its hottest, that would be just flying out of the top. It would be like a, almost a jet engine or something uh, propelling that out. So that's what the, the, uh, the top of the mountain looks like. It's wrapped in clouds because it says the Lord descended in fire. He came down on the mountain that way. And then there's a trumpet blast. It's a shofar. It's a ram's horn. And it's loud, and if you heard what, what uh, um, Jim read for us, it keeps getting louder. So this experience at the foot of the mountain is startling when they come out, and it gets more and more intense as that ram horn keeps getting louder and louder. And so Moses comes down the mountain to the people who had consecrated themselves, and he says, he, he takes them out of the camp to meet God. To meet God. They're going to walk out of the camp and they're going to meet God. Now, one of the questions that, that has been rattling around my uh, um, cold-addled brain this morning is why this type of epiphany? Why did it look like this when he showed up? Think about some of the other epiphanies that happen in the Bible. For example, um, Abraham uh, saw God as a traveler. He was going, he, he told Abraham he's going down to Sodom and Gomorrah to judge him. So why would God appear that way if he's going to, to rain fire from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah? And we can't know for sure. I'm, I'm going to infer here, and, and I hope that I don't infer inappropriately. But if we look at what the text says and we stick true to who God is, the nature of God, I think we can draw a fair inference, inference uh, of why he would appear that way at, uh, for Abraham, but this way here. Um, my, uh, my great theological statement, this is what I'm going to do my PhD on, is God does stuff on purpose. That's the, the great point. So when he appeared to Moses, 
he had a purpose. I mean, when he appeared to Abraham, he had a purpose in appearing to Abraham. There was a reason that he came to Abraham. And what God tells us in his word is, my word does not return void, but I send it out and it accomplishes what I'm going to do. And I don't think that's just the Bible or just his spoken word. It's what he's saying in a, in a kind of interesting way is, my purposes are carried out through the world. So here's my inference. God appears, he chooses the epiphany for a reason. And we can tell what that reason is because it comes to pass. So why did he appear to Abraham as a traveler? Now, Abraham got it, right? At first, he says, oh, come and let me make you some food and sit down and take it easy. And by the end, he's like, oh, my, he, he's, he knows he's talking to God. But I think what happened there is God appeared to Abraham as a traveler to invite him in to intercede for Sodom. Because isn't that what happened? Oh, Lord, what happens if there's 40 good people there? Okay, for 40, I won't destroy it. What if we're missing five? What if there's only 35? And on and on and on. So his, his choice for appearing as a traveler was to invite Abraham into intercession for Sodom because what God intended to do was deliver righteous Lot. That was his goal, was to get Lot out of Sodom so that when his judgment fell, Lot would escape. So there's one example. Here's another one. Um, the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, that is one of the weirdest epiphanies you can think of. You've got these four-faced creatures standing there, and they have wings that touch, and there's wheels within wheels with eyes all around, and sitting on top of them is a platform, and sitting on top of the platform is something like a, a, a throne, and sitting on the throne is something like a person, and then there's something like rainbows, and it just gets harder to explain the further up he goes. So why on earth would God appear to Ezekiel in an epiphany like that? What was it that Ezekiel had to know? Well, look at what Ezekiel's ministry was. Ezekiel was in Babylon. The Lord appeared to him in that epiphany near the Chebar Channel um, in Babylon. But what he's going to tell Ezekiel repeatedly is, look at what they're doing in, Egypt, in uh, um, Jerusalem. Look at what's happening in Jerusalem. They are doing all of these horrible things. There are ladies standing in the, in the, the gateway to the temple, and they're offering food to the queen of heaven. Um, this is terrible. So that picture then might be God is trying to show Ezekiel, I am with you here, but I can see everywhere. Those wheels within wheels covered in eyes, they're talking about his omniscience. He can see everywhere. Those wheels go directly where they need to go. They, they travel in straight lines. It's this idea that God can go and see that. So when he tells Ezekiel, this is what they're doing in Jerusalem. Ezekiel has that picture in his mind of, of that epiphany, and he goes, yeah, that's it. That's what's going on. So what about this one? What about this appearance? Well, let's take one step back. When was the last time God appeared on fire on Mount Sinai? The burning bush. Why was the burning bush not like this? Because, again, we're, we're having to make an inference. God wanted Moses to draw near he wanted him to come near because he was going to commission Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt. So if Moses looks up and he sees this, he's going to run. <laughs> There's no way he's going up there. I'm not going up on that mountain. That's terrifying. But what it says when he saw the burning bush not consumed, he says, now that's a curious thing. I think I'll turn aside and see what's going on with that. And as he draws near, then God speaks to him from the burning bush. So God has purposes in the way he appears to people. There's something that he's doing when he's appearing like this. And so with this one, what is he doing to his people? What is he, why did he appear as such a threatening, such a, a violent, 
such a, a loud and, and huge <coughs> epiphany like this? Well, I think the answer is to scare the people. They were supposed to be afraid. So when Moses says, come out and meet your God, it should terrify them. Um, why? Is God just like to scare people? Well, what is the fear of the Lord the beginning of? It's the beginning of wisdom. He, he, it's the beginning of understanding. These people had 400 years in slavery in Egypt. They had seen gods made out of rocks, gods made out of metal, gods made out of wood. They had heard about gods who had all kinds of bizarre stories. But what God is showing them here is, this is who I am. This is who Yahweh is. And what you must do is you must fear me. Now, that's not the end of it. It's not just be, be afraid of me and then never get near. Um, he wants them near. He told them, come up to the foot of the mountain. And then he appears in such a frightening form. So there's, there's a couple of things that um, are problematic in this story. And um, I'm a little worried because I came up with an answer that nobody else had. So get the stones ready. <laughs> you, may have to, you may have to stone a false prophet here. Verse 22 says, And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. One of the commentators said, I have no idea what's going on here. There are no priests yet. The priest won't be introduced until he starts going through the law. So what does he mean, let the priests consecrate themselves who draw near? And so some of the theories were maybe it's the young men in the camp who acted as priests at that time. Um, that's possible, but there's just no hint of it in the text. Um, another one was it was uh, uh, a later insertion you know, or something like that. I, I, here's my theory. Let me just get to the cut to the chase. What it says is God tells Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through and look and many of them perish. So the people are warned, don't break through. He had set a border. They, they put a border and said, if you go past that, we're going to kill you. We'll, we'll shoot you with arrows. We'll stone you. You can't go past that border. If an animal walks across that border, it will be shot. So don't break through. Don't come charging up and look on the Lord and, and perish. So the people are warned to not break through. But the priests who draw near are told to consecrate themselves. And yet no priests draw near. Not here. Not at this point. They'll draw near much later on. So here's my theory. What if we put parentheses around verse 2? What if this is a parenthetical statement that Moses is saying here. So what's going on is Moses, th this event happened in space and time, right? It actually occurred on Mount Sinai. There was fire, there was, you know, thunder, there was um, a, a sound of a horn. That actually happened in space and time. But Moses wasn't standing there writing it down as it was going on. He was quite busy trying to keep the people from charging up the mountain. So when he writes the book of Exodus, it's sometime later. So it's possible that what's going on is Moses wrote this after they'd been given the rules about the priests. So that's why I say, what if verse 22 is parenthetical? What he's telling them is, at Mount Sinai, the people couldn't break through and run in because they could get killed. I mean, God is, is very serious about this. And then he tells the priests, you have been given the right to enter into the tabernacle, into the most holy place, but you must consecrate yourself. You must set yourself apart. You are a very special people. You don't charge into my presence either. So the theory here is the story of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons. They came in with strange fire. They picked up their censers. They threw fire in it. They threw some, um, 
some uh, incense on it, and they marched into the tabernacle with this strange fire, and God killed them. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what strange fire is. It's an odd turn of phrase. It's the only time it occurs in, in the Bible. Um, one of the most interesting explanations I've heard is when you look at how the tabernacle is set up when the sacrifices are lit, it is God who sends a fire from heaven and ignites it. And that was the fire that they would keep burning. They would always take a piece of it with them when they were going to set up the tabernacle or when they were going to move. So for these guys to come in with a different kind of fire, a strange fire, is they're improvising. And God says, no, this is all because of me. This is all because of what I have done. And so if Moses is writing this after the episode with Nadab and Abihu, what he's warning the priests at this point is, you're special because God has made you special. You're allowed to go in because God has done that. So before you go charging into the Lord's presence, you consecrate yourself. You set yourself apart. And you understand that you're not really that much better than the people. You're just called to a different role. So that's my theory is, is we'll just put parentheses around it and call it a deal. Yeah, that doesn't work. <laughs> because what happens in verse 24, it says, The Lord said to him, Go down and bring up Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through. Ah, rats. I did all that work for nothing. Um, what if we slap more parentheses around that? That kind of helps. Um, doesn't really help a whole bunch. Perhaps, though, if we continue with that thought, what he's telling the priests is, look, when it comes right down to it, priests, you have a special role in Israel. You are going to offer sacrifices. The people will bring the tithe in, and you will take a portion of that. But you have a special role. But when you look up at that mountain, and the mountain is quaking, and, and the, the mountain is wrapped in thick cloud, and it's, it's thunders, and it's lightnings, and it's a trumpet blast, don't you think that you're special and you can go charging up there any old time you want? Even there, God is saying, I am holy, and I will be treated as holy by anybody who approaches me. So that's, that's what I think that his, his point of uh, mentioning the priests is, is the priests are not to break through. They're not any, they don't have a special pass um, you know, to get through that the people don't have. Um, you will come up when I call you up. You will treat me as holy. And so that's possibly what's going on. So that's the situation. Now they're... they're um, there, Moses goes back down the mountain, and he gets Aaron, and he and Aaron go up, and God talks to him. And we'll get what he says next week in chapter 20. So what does this have to do with us? Um, did anybody come to saving faith in Jesus Christ by seeing a mountain on fire trembling and, and all of that? We didn't have that kind of experience. About the closest I got is I was driving in from the base one time years and years ago when we lived on base, and uh, Wrightwood was lit up. The, the, the ski slopes, all the lights were on, and there was a thick cloud over top of it. And I drove in, and I saw that, and I was like, oh, wow, that must be like Sinai. And I went, that's nothing like Sinai. That's like a match compared to a forest fire. You know, it's like, it doesn't even get close. But it, it, it kind of got the idea of this lit mountain, and it's covered in, in smoke. But there's something more than this going on. So to get at this, we need to go to the book of Hebrews. Go to Hebrews 12. So let me read Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 18. With all of that in mind, with all that we've heard, and don't forget last week, what were we supposed to, what was Israel supposed to be? A, a royal priesthood, right? Listen to how the author of Hebrews explains it. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg no further message be spoken to them. 
for they could not endure the order that was given them. If even a beast touches a mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him um, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Have you ever thought about that on a Sunday morning, walking in here with the trumpet blast from Mount Sinai ringing in your ears and think, I need to offer acceptable worship because our God is a consuming fire. What he did to Nadab and Abihu is not something that's against his character. He will be treated as holy. He will be seen as holy. We will worship him in holiness. But the thing that the author of Hebrews is saying is that mountain was so sacred and so different that they couldn't touch it. The people were excluded from that. Moses had to go up, Aaron had to go up, but the people were not allowed to get anywhere near. As a matter of fact, if I'm right about what I said about chapter 19, then not even the priests could go up. They were, even if they were consecrated, they, they were excluded from that as well. And then the author of Hebrews turns around and says, but we've come to heavenly Zion. We've come to a holy city. So as terrifying as God is in that epiphany, and it's terrifying, if, if you stop and really think about it, meditate on that a little bit, that would be terrifying. Imagine one of the mountains over here rattling, jumping, shaking, and a trumpet blast so loud it hurt your ears and it getting louder. That would be a terrifying thing. And yet, the same God appeared to Abraham as a sojourner, to Ezekiel as a, a, a platform and a, and a throne, and to Moses as a burning bush, and to Israel as a mountain on fire that appears to us. So, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. As terrifying as Mount Sinai was, Jesus' exact imprint of that so how is it that we can approach him and not be destroyed? How is it that we could cross the line and draw near not to a mountain, but to a heavenly city? It's because our God has made us a nation of priests. He's made us a royal priesthood. He has invited us up the mountain. He says, come and worship. And then at, at the end of the, the section, at the end of the chapter, for our God is a consuming fire. And that's exactly what happened to Nadab and Abihu. They tried to do something different. They tried to improvise. They tried to bring in strange fire, fire that hadn't been given by God in the temple, 
but fire from, I don't know, a big lighter in their pocket maybe or something. But they, they brought strange fire in and God consumed them. And not only did God consume them, he says, don't weep over them. Don't let your hair grow long. Um, have two other people come over, pick them up in their, in their um, gowns and haul them out of the camp and don't you mourn them because they have violated. That's how holy God is. That's how special and how, how privileged it is that we come to the, the heavenly Zion, that we have been invited in not to a mountain but to a city, that we could draw near because of our greater, our better high priest, not Aaron. Aaron's not going to last. He's going to die. He's going to get replaced. We have a high priest who entered in and sat down and sits there eternally, our great Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we come now to chapter 20 and to the law, what we have to see, and, and I think what I'm going to do is when we finish Exodus, I'm going to do the book of Romans because law is one of those really difficult uh, issues for Christians. I heard one person describe it, the relationship of the law of Moses and the Christian is one of the most important aspects of uh, Christian theology. And I just can't think of a better book that deals with it than Paul's magnum opus, the book of Romans. So I think we'll hit the book of Romans after we go through all this law to understand what's our relationship to that. How do we interact with that? What are we supposed to do with that? But whatever it is, however we get there, at this point, as we're standing at the foot of the mountain with Israel, we're trembling too. God is frightening. He's, he's terrifying. He expects us to gain wisdom because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So then as he begins to announce his laws, the, the plan, the goal, the hope was, you won't see these laws as this is how you're okay with me, but these laws are going to frame us as a people. And, and that's who we'll be. That's how we'll operate is according to these laws. But don't ever look to those laws and go, if I do enough of them, I'll be good with God. Because right in the center of all that is a tabernacle and sacrifices and sin and all of that. So that's where he's going to go with his law. That's where the law is going to take us eventually. Um, looking forward to getting to it. Pray for me because I'm not sure how to do the Ten Commandments. I, I'm, I'm debating. Do I do each commandment one at a time? Take a whole week on each commandment? Um, do I do the tablets of the law? The first four are relate to God. The, the last six relate to man. Um, I'm not sure what to do, and I keep waffling, and so I'm dragging my feet. But I don't think I'm going to be able to get away with being sick next week again. So <laughs> that only plays out so many times, and then you get in trouble. So thank you for putting up with me in, in my weakness, and um, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for calling us to a city that can be touched. And Lord, that city we hear in the book of Revelation is a perfect cube, and the only other cube in the entire Bible was the Holy of Holies, the, the most sacred place at the center of the tabernacle and the temple. And that's our city, that's where we live, that's, that's our dwelling place, is in your presence. And what Revelation 21 tells us is there is no temple, because the Lord and the Lamb are the temple. And so, Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for uh, drawing us close to you. Lord, another epiphany just occurred to me. John, speaking of Revelation, hears a voice of many waters, a thunder, and he turns and he sees a lamb that was slain. He, he, your epiphany to him in that vision was as the Savior, as the one who would draw you close. And so thank you for that. Draw us close and help us to understand law well. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.